Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. This is Nick Cheesman, co-host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network. The novel coronavirus pandemic of 2020 has pushed us all into our homes. Consequently, because our and our interviewees' home internet connections are generally not as good as those at our workplaces where we usually do our interviews, you may find that sometimes the sound quality in what follows is not quite as good as usual. We're sorry for that and hope it won't interfere greatly with your enjoyment of the interview. Thanks for your understanding while we and our interviewees do our best throughout this trying time to keep on bringing you conversations about new books on Southeast Asia. Do get in touch if you have any comments or suggestions about how we're doing. Stay well, stay safe, and keep listening. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the new books in Southeast Asian Studies website. At the start of 2020, few of us would have recognised the face of the current Director-General of the World Health Organisation. Three months later, and in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, he and other senior WHO officials appear in our news streams almost daily, exhorting governments around the world to take urgent measures to stop the spread of the virus, advising them on how to do so and coordinating efforts. The prominent part that the WHO is playing is not unprecedented, but it is relatively new, emerging in the wake of global political changes in the 1990s and in response to disease outbreaks in the last couple of decades, in Asia and Africa especially. In containing contagion, the politics of disease outbreaks in Southeast Asia, which the Johns Hopkins University Press published in 2019, Sarah Davies tracks these regulatory changes and alongside them, the emergence of a regional regime to respond to disease outbreaks among the member states of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN. Sarah is a professor in the School of Government and International Relations at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia, where she's also a member of the Griffith Asia Institute, one of our sponsors for the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel. She's speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University and co-host of the channel. Sarah, thank you very much for taking the time to discuss Containing Contagion and congratulations on publishing what is undeniably a timely book. Thank you so much, Nick, for having me. Sarah, social scientists appreciate having their work referred to as timely, as I just did of yours. And the term is often hackneyed or misused and empty signify when nothing else comes to mind. But that's hardly the case with containing contagion. I'm not sure how to put this other than to ask, did you see this pandemic coming? I think the question about disease outbreaks in the region, particularly in Southeast Asia and East Asia, has been a big discussion for the last two decades. So there was always a sense that 
this region was going to perhaps be the hot zone or the hot spot. And if it did, it would be a very, very fast spreading event just because of the way this region is so connected. How did you get interested in the topic? In 2003, I was doing my thesis on international refugee law in Southeast Asia. And I was at the point of writing about the contemporary era of managing the continued flow of asylum seekers into Southeast Asia and how states were managing or were were being instructed to share their management of asylum seekers through regional means and was finding that it was it was very difficult the closest they could get was to the the Bali protocol which had a number of problems at the time if you're thinking about that response from a refugee rights angle and then SARS happened uh, the severe acute respiratory syndrome and then not long after that the H5N1 avian influenza and what I was seeing was discussions amongst the states that I had been watching in another area, very rapid meetings, rapid discussion. Sometimes I felt very frank exchange about capacity and limits in ways that I had not seen in this other area. And I was really interested also with the way security was being used in response to this health crisis it seemed very different to what I had been seeing in the asylum seeker and refugee humanitarian crisis in the region. And so I was just really interested and wanted to try and understand why this was happening. Let's jump in there then on this question of security and the relationship between security and pandemic responses. You say that in Southeast Asia, Among ASEAN member states, the language of health security has been paramount to the manner in which they've formulated responses collectively to crises of the sort that we're seeing today. What does that term health security denote and how has it worked politically in Southeast Asia? There is a tradition of of concern, right, about when you say that something is a security problem, you're taking it out of the realm of your normal political tools and your normal political responses. There's a risk even that you are making it an emergency and then you're justifying a whole range of responses that may not always be grounded in rule of law and can sometimes create these very militaristic responses that can be actually quite harmful if we're thinking about individual protection. In the case of health and its use of health security in the region, I argue that what we were seeing, particularly, I think, from a number of academics, but also from a number of political operatives within ASEAN and within certain states within ASEAN, was a desire to cut across concerns about different capacity, the different health system capacity amongst their memberships, to cut across different political regimes, to cut across economic constraints or trade and travel concerns and say this issue is essential and it's one that we all have to be dealing with irrespective of where we feel we are positioned in terms of being able to manage it and even 
the consequence of having to expose the fact that there may be some limits to what certain states can do when it comes to something like surveillance. It was almost, I argue, more grounded in human security terms about we need to know what's happening to your health system. How are you managing in the event of an outbreak? Because if you're insecure, we are all insecure. And that idea of a collective enterprise to manage health security, I think was was quite deliberate. It was risky because, and, and I think, you know, we're seeing this at the moment, you can't then always control how individual members will interpret that. But there was very much, and in my interviews with people who were part of the ASEAN Secretariat at the time, there was a lot of thought and attention in collaboration with the World Health Organization about trying to couch it almost in sovereign responsibility. You know, sovereigns have a responsibility to think about the health security of their citizens, but also a responsibility that sovereign states have to each other in the membership. And I think it was important because it was happening at the same time that there was a lot of discussion about haze pollution and this idea that there were non-traditional security threats that required collective attention. Is there something to the manner in which this health security apparatus has been built in the current period that harkens back to earlier ideas about the relationship between state security and public health in Southeast Asia? You seem to be speaking to how this idea emerges at a particular point in time where both politically and ideationally ASEAN is working towards the kind of outcomes that enable cooperation of this sort. But is there a longer history here to speak to? And if so, is this really a non-traditional security threat? You have touched upon my own private concern about the way in which we separate out what is traditional security and what is non-traditional. It's certainly not something that i personally subscribe to, but I was conscious in this book of trying to tell the story of how the region conceptualized their action and what would compel them to feel collectively that they needed to respond. You are right. And the book was originally going to be a longer historical study of how health is associated with sovereignty and responsibility in the region because, of course, the region from the 1960s has had a very interesting story of post-colonisation, location within the Cold War, as well as a lot of different political regime change, sometimes quite devastating, and I think sometimes we forget or underestimate just how significant some of the conflicts in the region were and what's been required to rebuild and repair. And I also was very interested in it because when when I was doing some archival research, I came across the League of Nations and what was not at the time Singapore, but would eventually become called Singapore, was one of the important locations for communicating disease surveillance reports to the then League of Nations Health Organization, which was, of course, you know, part of the British Empire. And there was a lot of critique of health security during the 2000s. And sometimes this was raised by those within the region that health security 
is something that's being imposed from the United States or from the United Kingdom or even from Australia to just secure themselves, secure their borders from the threats coming from the region. And so there was always sometimes in the critique of this term that reference back to exploitation, to colonisation and the inequalities that, that have consisted and persist and, and can be attributed to the reason why this region could become or could be seen as, if you like, a hot spot. We might have jumped ahead slightly and passed over some important descriptive contents in the book into matters of interpretation. So if we can come back to those momentarily, you mentioned very briefly the part that the World Health Organization was playing in mobilizing the interventions that are the subject of the book. And that part is based significantly on the revised international health regulations. What are those revised regulations and why are they important for understanding? understanding the role that the WHO is playing in creating a different sense of state obligations in responding to contagious diseases. The international health regulations can be traced back to the 1850s and their first attempt to create an international sanitary convention to try and ensure that trade and travel could continue during the building of empires. And it was contested at the time where you had some states, particularly the United Kingdom, was insistent that trade and travel should be maintained even during outbreaks. And there needed to be a set of rules about what should be done at ports of entry to make sure that those ports were complying with a strict quarantine provision. And that would build trust then for trade and travel continue. And there were a number of other countries at the time who were against this and were concerned that a trade and travel measures would exploit those countries or those ports that had the capacity to manage the flow of goods and exercise these quarantine regulations. And those who didn't have the power to do so would be rendered vulnerable due to disease outbreaks. The United Kingdom was quite persistent and then the growth of empire amongst some of the other imperial states of the time of states who had imperial ambitions continued. And so by 1906, we see the sketch out print, if you like, of what then became the International Sanitary Convention and then the International Health Regulations when the World Health Organization was set up in 1948. And those were adopted in 1951. And by then, there was a sense actually that with the emergence of a large number of now independent states or reconfiguring of territories, that some sort of coordination around particular infectious diseases that can cause massive devastation and really weaken our health systems was important. And so that regulation was specific to a list of diseases that were identified such as yellow fever and smallpox that would require states to have a set of protocols that they would follow at ports of entry to make sure that people arriving from locations where there were outbreaks or where there was you know, a large number of populations with these diseases, that they'd have to have vaccination certificates and go through a series of checks and measures to make sure that everyone complied. Over the years, there were some changes to the regulations and there was an increasing sense that states were just not equally adhering to the convention. And in particular, with the eradication of smallpox, in the early 1980s, there was this sense that 
trying to develop international cooperation around infectious disease outbreaks was going to be eventually become a bit passe. We were going to be strong enough in our public health systems and clever enough in our technologies to make infectious diseases, if not something of the past, but something that we could control. And on top of that, the newly emerging economies we're seeing, you know, day after day, the consequence of them having to report disease outbreaks such as cholera, which would have massive impact on their trade and travel. And it wasn't something that by then a lot of very wealthy developed states were not having to report because they weren't experiencing it. So by the 1990s, there was this sense that the regulations were quite weak. They weren't always being followed. But on the other hand, we also were starting to enter a new age where new infectious diseases were arriving at a fast pace and the growth of travel and trade with the era of globalisation, the end of the Cold War, was starting to create this sense of urgency that new diseases were going to arrive, they were going to travel fast and we didn't have the international tools to deal with it. Come 1995, We had, by then, a plague outbreak in India, which had caused massive trade and travel disruption. And there was a sense that that type of devastation, that type of panic, there was mass panic. In fact, more people dying from the crushes and the the panic of people trying to flee the cities where the plague had been identified than the plague itself. There needed to be an international cooperation around this. But then for 10 years, we've had a bit of of a slow burn, if you like, where the World Health Organization would convene lots of meetings to discuss what these revised international health regulations should look like. And there was lots of testing, lots of discussions, and not much political momentum until SARS. And then the arrival of SARS changed that momentum almost overnight. These regulations now were broad, so they weren't about specific diseases. They were about a public health emergency of international concern. And there was a annex attached with a matrix for then how states would identify if an outbreak occurring in their borders needed to be uh, brought to the attention of the WHO Director General or to the World Health Organization Regional Office. The World Health Organization has its headquarters in Geneva, but it also has regional offices located around the world. And there's a strict timeline. There's a 24-hour notice and a 48-hour notice for confirmation of events that are taking place that you need to report to the World Health Organization. And then on top of that, there was also a number of what we call core capacity criteria that were attached to the international health regulations. So the argument was that if states are going to report disease outbreaks that could have some temporary shock to their trade and travel system by being transparent. There needed to be recommendations and support put in place to help states build the capacity to be able to detect these outbreaks, report these outbreaks, and have a system in place that would build trust that even if a state was reporting an outbreak, there didn't need to be these retaliatory trade and travel measures straight away. It could be a cooperative endeavour. So to pick up on that, the point that you make in your book is that the response of Southeast Asian states to the prompts of the World Health Organization are unusual in as much as they exert a kind of regionalism and approach questions of how best to address the problem as it's presented to them by international organizations in a somewhat different way from other countries around the world and other regional organizations. Can you expand on that point if I've understood it correctly? 
what was interesting about the Asian region, which at the time was being particularly buffeted by the SARS outbreak and then H5N1, was that there was a strong argument that there needed to be some sort of financial investment attached to the international health regulations and that there also needed to be this understanding of the limit of different health systems where you had some health systems that have a high volume of private providers, you have some health systems that are centralised, some that are decentralised, and there also was a sense that this region was going to be gazed upon with interest to see how they were managing it in live time while trying to manage these emergencies. And so there was an effort from the ASEAN Plus Three, so ASEAN member states plus Korea, Japan and China. China hosted a World Bank conference around trying to increase funding and investment that was in coordination with ASEAN Plus Three. And then you also had a number of traditional donors such as the United States, Canada, the European Union, partake in those types of events. You also had this coordination start to emerge between the two regional offices of the World Health Organization that have responsibility for Asia and Pacific or what we now call Indo-Pacific and it stretched across from Central Asia to the Pacific so that was the Western Pacific Regional Office and the Southeast Asian Regional Office and the decision of these two regional offices to come together and to, pre- to present this strategic partnership for the region to follow and how it would adapt and understand its obligations to the rise of international health regulations was novel. It really had not been seen in the history of the World Health Organization to that point. There had been massive coordination projects at the World Health Organization-led headquarters, but two regional offices coming together to try and coordinate states' obligations to this international instrument was new. And you then track compliance across the different member states of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, particularly concentrating on the period of 2005 to 2010. What methods did you use to generate data and what did you observe? There had been a study done by Emily Chan and colleagues that had been published in Plus Medicine that had been trying to establish how quickly were states in the Western Pacific region reporting first outbreak of a particular disease that could meet the conditions for a public health emergency of international concern. And that study had looked at reports that had been made by the state to the World Health Organization, any types of reports then that had come from that state and had been published then in an international or an internet disease surveillance platform. So today, everyone watching coronavirus would know you've got the Johns Hopkins website, which is one that everyone's going to at the moment to look at the coronavirus numbers. At the time, one that was very popular and still is today, they weren't actually one of the first reporters of the coronavirus outbreak was ProMed, which was created in 1994. And ProMed is a fascinating platform that basically reports rumours of disease outbreak events but they report them after they've been verified by a group of epidemiologists, virologists and other medical experts, often from within the region, who determine the veracity of what's been reported. And it was being used in this article to try and understand how fast were states trying to catch up with rumours because this was what was meant to be the aftermath 
of SARS and then the international health regulations that states needed to get better at beating the rumours because rumours create panic, uncertainty and lack of faith in international cooperation. So what I did was I then took note of what had been identified as the types of diseases that had been identified in the literature as possibly coming under the international health regulations. And I compared, I actually went back from 1996, eventually up to 2015, and I tried to look over that period of time, what were the practices and the behaviours of states reporting through the weekly surveillance report to the World Health Organization, and then it became the daily surveillance reports, and compared that then to how was the rumour mill was it getting ahead or was it keeping current? Were states beating the types of then reports that were coming from ProMed? But also there was another server that I was using as well, which was run by um, Canadian government at the time. I ended up just going for first reports. My original ambition was to try and look at verifications. It, it proved at the time very difficult to do it because of the, because of the times, the technology for me and my access was not good enough. But I think today we could do it. And so what I found was that states were definitely trying to get faster at reporting. Most states were trying to get better, more prompt at reporting outbreaks, a a range of outbreaks, actually. And that for me was quite interesting when you're thinking that a number of states have different capacities and different structures, internal structures for how disease reports make it to the public space. And you think that cuts across regime type, given that there is such a diversity of regimes in Southeast Asia? Regime type, I think, does matter. There needs to be a lot more discussion about regime type, about how political regimes appreciate and define transparency, how they manage communication networks, what is a state media versus a private or a more commercial media. They're not always the same thing in some of these regimes, and that really does impact then on the types of reporting and the promptness of the reporting that we're seeing. Sarah, let's hold on to that point and bring it into the second part of the discussion where we'll go to the current novel coronavirus pandemic and lessons that we can take from your book for thinking about what's happening to us today and why. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where today's guest is Sarah Davies, the author of Containing a Contagion. Sarah, before the break, we were talking about a regime type trust, transparency, and reporting through the international and regional mechanisms for management of disease outbreaks. One of the questions that you raise in the book is whether and under what circumstances a state may not report an outbreak because they don't know what's going on or because they are deliberately withholding information? This question was asked of China in the early days of the current pandemic, but it might also be asked of, say, Myanmar, where well after other states throughout Southeast Asia and around the world were reporting on infections and transmissions of the coronavirus, the government there continued to insist that it had no cases at all. 
Can we really ever say, is it a matter of the government being dishonest or disingenuous or just plain ignorant about what's happening? And what difference does it make anyway? Doesn't any one of those circumstances undermine public trust in the ability of the state to respond at a moment like this? I'm still not sure. I've done a very good job at trying to explain how I see trust and transparency and regime type, the interplay of these in the book. And part of the reason was because when we think about how do we measure regime type or how do we measure transparency or how do we measure trust between a population and government, in these cases you're not getting very good, consistent quantitative data over that period of time that I was studying. So what I came to depend upon was was a lot of interviews and a lot of qualitative methods, so a lot of reading reports and comparing what technical experts were saying about shortfalls in reporting, how they were explaining when there were gaps between what a state was saying they were they were detecting and then what, say, a rumour site like ProMed was detecting. I also paid a lot of attention to the regime at the time and how was it being characterised. The polity measures that I used earlier in the book were to some extent helpful, but not entirely because polity itself is, is only one way in which we can think about a regime type. But for me, the reason why I kept drawing out this distinction between capacity and deliberate intention to hide was because the effort in APSED, so the effort in the Asia-Pacific Strategy for Emerging Diseases, so that that attempt in the first five years to get states to cooperate, there was a determination to try and take out capacity as a reason to not report. If you don't have the capacity to detect an outbreak or if you don't have the capacity to verify, so to know what outbreak you are dealing with, that's not a reason to not seek help. And so then it became really interesting for me to then track the countries that did then seek help and the countries that still continued to try and avoid seeking help. And what I saw there was there tended to be a pattern. Your countries that have strict controls over media, that have a low tolerance for civic space that challenges the authority of the regime, tended to be areas where capacity is a problem, but then there's also an additional problem where they are refusing to seek help. And Myanmar was a classic example of that. And worryingly, as the time went on, I saw Cambodia at times also became an example of that. And I think it's important to pay attention to this because I thought that was the pattern. But now that I'm looking at Indonesia at the moment, I'm seeing a executive government that was very reluctant to report or to or to just you know present its uncertainty and that was often against what the what the technical experts were asking the executive government to do and this was in a democratic country 
that's been concerning to me in the coronavirus outbreak. To remain for a moment on this regime type question, indeed I was struck by how in your book you discuss this rather orthodox view in the literature that democracy is, to put it crudely, do contagion better because they're more open to public scrutiny, they get the word out faster, they aim to work cooperatively rather than coercively with their publics to get things under control, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, as of April 2020, the response of the United States, whose government is elected through a limited franchise anyway, looks shambolic, and the electoral democracies of Western Europe are being hammered. And meanwhile, health officials, officials in the World Health Organization, Lord China, if not for its initial response, then certainly for after it started to act very aggressively to shut down entire cities so as to contain the spread of the virus. And we have pundits and ostensible progressives who are even advocating for a kind of so-called enlightened autocracy in the manner of the government of Singapore. I think what we've seen here is why I think it is important to tease out capacity the capacity around the coordination response. I also introduce into the book rights and the need to have a more full discussion about the civic, social and economic rights of populations affected by disease outbreaks, but also in the preparedness for disease outbreaks. So at the moment when we're thinking about preparations for disease outbreak response or for a disease health emergency, There's not been a lot of advice given around how to think about the human rights obligations between states and citizens in this outbreak and to how to think about populations in particular at risk and how to make sure that those populations at risk are part of the communication, a part of the response. And I would argue that in the case of the United States, what we're seeing is some of that problem where we've seen prolonged intersectional inequalities are bearing out and the crisis. We've also seen a capacity crisis to some extent there in terms of how to coordinate a federal system. In the case of China, as time goes on, we will probably learn a lot more about how the the system in China worked. There does seem to now be a view that maybe the World Health Organization was a little bit too positive about how the response was managed. That's not to say that the lockdown that then China proceeded with wasn't effective. Whether the numbers are three times what are being reported, there's no doubt that at the moment the rates of infection have dropped. You can't hide it for that length of time. But I think what we'll also then see is the cost to populations of the types of lockdown measures. You know, there was some very horrific stories about disabled individuals and elderly individuals and people of very low economic means and the conditions in which they had to endure. And I also think too that what we're not necessarily paying attention to is the fact that there are some countries that are more democratically inclined or that have taken on different types of testing regimes and communication regimes such as Germany and South Korea, and even to some extent Taiwan, there are some other cases here where there have been different types of responses that have been developed, different types of communications. So I don't think yet we can say definitively that those sort of harsh lockdown regimes are the only way that we can 
try and address this outbreak. And among Southeast Asian states, perhaps the one that's attracted the most attention for its expedient handling of the virus, at least in its early stages, is Singapore. We keep hearing comments like, well, they learned from SARS. What observations do you have about what Singapore has been doing in response to the coronavirus that might be informed by the research that you did on the book? Singapore is a really interesting case. I mean, it's it's such an unusual city-state, and I think that's the first thing that needs to be said. But it was also an issue for me in the book because it did have such a great story to tell. And of course, I knew that there had been a number of lockdowns that had happened during the SARS outbreak that had led to some rights infringements for certain individuals. And so from a civil rights perspective, I was somewhat conflicted as I was uh, trying to think about the fact that at the end of the day, there is no doubt that their response was quite effective. And the infringements that I saw and that I heard were certainly not of the scale of what I'd seen in some of the other locations where there had also been gross rights violations. I think what's happening with Singapore at the moment, though, is, as you say, is a very good story to tell about exposure, preparedness. So there's no doubt that Singapore has been aware of the fact that it is particularly vulnerable and economically it needs to have a robust preparedness framework. And I think that what we have seen in a number of the countries that have been struggling has been this tailing off of maintaining that focus and vigilance on preparedness and and having those constant contacts and discussions between your epistemic communities and your political executive about how to manage these types of emergencies. And I think the reason why we can say that that is certain is because if we look at South Korea, we can see a similar trend there. So they experienced the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome outbreak in quite a severe way in 2015. And what had happened since then was a real upscale in thinking about how to make sure that there was a preparedness framework in place, that the relationships between your technical advisors and your political executive had a robust sort of exchange system in place, and that, of course, there was the legislation in place that needed to be there to react and respond very quickly, regardless of where the outbreak was occurring within the country. Perhaps the one thing I would add about Singapore has been that There are some concerns that the controls over communication about the virus are starting to be stretched just a little bit to include political opponents. You know, if you have a political opponent who is expressing concern about the social welfare scheme that's being introduced in Singapore to try and compensate those who are having to be placed in self-isolation or lockdown, those comments were were taken away. People weren't able to view them and the individual political opponent was um, censured for opposing the government response. And have these securitized approaches that you tracked in earlier years uh, come with new laws and agencies to police and control populations of the sort that we've seen in this country, Australia, with the Biosecurity Act? Or are they really working with existing legal and administrative arrangements that are already fit for purpose? There was a number of legislation changes that had to be made and the majority of the countries directed it up into the executive. So it sits actually with with the prime minister or the executive level of government in terms of the president, in terms of being able to determine then 
what type of action should be enacted. That is for a general emergency. What we've also seen happen under the coronavirus outbreak has been the use of state emergency laws, but then there's also been a number of states that are revising and returning to the legislation that they have. Indonesia engaging with a lot of discussions about whether or not there needs to be amendments to now permit a civil military response to the outbreak. Uh, We also know that Myanmar is undergoing these types of discussions at the moment. Um, So we're seeing some little indications here of some worrying trends for state overreach legitimated in the coronavirus outbreak at the moment. The state is back, as David Runciman wrote. Uh, They're back in a big way. Sovereignty is back and borders are back. And from my point of view, they've never gone. But from many points of view, they're back. So what are the implications then for the regionalism that you're describing in the book? How is this regional arrangement doing under the current circumstances? So if I could quickly come back, as I argue at the end of the book, the more we can pay attention to state responsibility to fulfill civil and political rights and see that as part of an effective response to disease outbreaks and risk communication, I think that will improve capacity and I think that will improve trust. In terms of the way the region is responding to it at the moment, I think what I predicted at the end of the book was that we were seeing the hollowing out of regionalism in disease outbreak response. After the Ebola outbreak in 2014 in West Africa, and then again with the Zika outbreak in 2016, there was this sense that the way in which donors were willing to invest in health capacity was to do it primarily through bilateral programs. So you get the state to meet the indicators that you want and you get them to go through the evaluation exercise and you want to see, for one of a crude expression, bang for buck. You know, you want to see that what you're investing in in terms of labs and in terms of healthcare worker training and these sorts of things, that it is seeing their capacity move up the line. And what I what I argue we've seen a bit less of is investment in those types of regional chat sessions and getting together and having those discussions where mid-level and high-level technocrats and civil servants are coming together, which there was a lot of during the post-SARS past H5N1 outbreak, particularly in this region. And we've sort of seen that tail off a bit and we've seen a real ramp up of these bilateral exchanges. And I argue that what that leads to is two things, that you invest in your buddies and then there's not necessarily the type of opportunity sometimes for fair exchange. And one of the things that I point to is, you know, the evaluations now of states meeting the international health regulations have no references to human rights. There's no reference to building non-government organisation capacity as part of the community of responders and part of the community of communication sharers. It's just mentioned in one of the assessments as something that they should strive to support. And I think that's a problem because one of the things that is really important is the regional discussions enabled the opportunity for different actors to come in and take part. And so a lot of the workshops I went to, there were states that were present, but there were also people from university institutions, there were also people from non-government organisations, because it was seen as a general forum where then it was permissible, if you like, to invite these different actors to attend. Sarah, on a slightly different tack, here we are in the middle of this pandemic, and meantime, 
endemic diseases like dengue fever, which is still prevalent in so many parts of Southeast Asia, but of course transmitted not through human-to-human contact, but via mosquitoes in tropical regions is continuing. You suggest that health policies in Southeast Asia have been skewed toward events like this pandemic precisely because of the imperatives, the agendas of the World Health Organization and its donors. And I'm wondering if one consequence of the current events is that that will increasingly be the case and endemic diseases in Southeast Asia aren't going to get the attention they deserve. What are your thoughts about that? That was one of the concerns actually post-SARS and post-H5N1 and that was why APSED, the Asia-Pacific Strategy for Emerging Diseases, was crafted because they did have uh, Japanese encephalitis and dengue and, and the rise of malaria as well where there was a lot of concern that focus on those novel events was going to take our eye off the fact that there needed to be investment, support and capacity developed around these diseases that are accounting for high rates of mortality and morbidity across the region. And so that was why the upset emerged because of what was seen as there was a deliberate attempt to bring in dengue. So dengue was one of the ones that was pilot exercised in the first three years of the phase-in where they sort of used dengue outbreak, a large-scale dengue outbreak, as a way to test the system. And they were seen as trying to address the immediate concerns that states had by saying if you had taken these types of exercises now, this will build your capacity for that then future event. And so in an environment where we'd already seen those types of investments tailing off in the last few years and there wasn't so much investment in those types of exercises, perhaps with the exception of malaria, where there'd been a little bit more attention, it may retract even further. And, and that's going to be a concern. And I think also what's happening is two things. So we've got donors now are going to be fixated on post-coronavirus and trying to just think about how to manage their domestic budgets with their donor budgets and what can be cut, to be frank. And we've also got a region as well, which has kind of started to tail off in terms of its own investment in, in healthcare. And then that's going to come under massive pressure as well with this current outbreak. So I think there is a need to be quite concerned actually about the health effects, the longer term health crises that we might see. Sarah, the book was published in 2019 and here we are in 2020 with all of these things happening. Do you have another project already underway or are you pausing and observing and being involved in discussions like this one and thinking about what's next it's been really good to think about what the book got right and what the book maybe got wrong, and I, I'd love to have people share with me uh, their views on that. Two things that I've been thinking a lot about after the book was trying to understand a little bit more at a deeper level how groups at risk during health emergencies are, are brought into the response and how they are accommodated for, particularly in environments where they may be marginalised. So I've started working on a project with some colleagues in Canada and the United Kingdom and Hong Kong where we're looking in particular at women, so low-income migrants and individuals at risk of violence and thinking about how risk communication messages include them or exclude them, how they access care, how they access information and to what extent policies accommodate their needs during health emergencies. 
The other area that I'm really interested in going forward is thinking about how technology can enable but also constrain the communication during outbreak events. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is there's been a lot of focus and attention to the good that the technology can do, and I definitely think that we have seen that in the case of of South Korea is the one that keeps being used a lot. But we also know that there's a certain amount of compromise that you make in sharing that kind of private information about where you were 24 hours a day. And while we might see it in quite a benign way during an outbreak, we also need to be aware that technology can be used deliberately to keep people out of the information loop as well. And so there are deliberate internet blackouts and sites where people cannot access technology and that's deliberate and we need to then think about how do they access information during these types of emergencies and how do we know what is going on that's a problem for them and it's a problem for a faith in and again it's called to be cooperative uh, if we have states that are deliberately denying their populations information how do we manage that then when we're talking about cooperation around virus sequences and vaccines and and essential goods Sarah Davis, I think I can speak on behalf of all of our listeners when I say that this is a tremendously informative discussion that we've had. And I thank you very much for coming on at quite short notice to talk about your containing contagion. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And a thank you to everyone for listening and thinking with us about the pandemic situation as it unfolds in 2020. If you think that there are any other authors whose books on Southeast Asia will help us do more thinking along these lines, then please write me or one of my co-hosts, Patrick Jory or Faisal Zachariah, to let us know. Our contact details are on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website.